Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Major League Rugby Rant Podcast Show with your hosts, Ty Braga, Scott Ferrara, and Rob Hammerschmidt, who tackle the tough topics relating to Major League Rugby in the US and Canada. This is your premier source of information. You are listening to the Major League Rugby Rant Podcast Show. Joining me here today, we have, of course, the familiar faces of Scott, the big guy from the Rooney Supporters Club. Underneath him, you can see Rob Hammerschmidt from Hammer Rugby. And also joining us here today, we have the familiar sounding voice from the earful of dirt, that is Craig. And uh, he's going to be joining us here today to be able to tackle these two uh, between Scott and Rob. I think we are two wins each. Is that right, guys? Correct. I'm on a two-match two win streak. I'll point that oh, out. Okay, excellent. So let's see if you can make it the hat trick, all right? But uh, Craig is hopefully going to be standing in your way here today and uh, stopping that final victory there. Now, gentlemen, today we have some interesting topics to be able to debate. First up, what all the fans wanted to know about in the Major League Rugby Fan Zone group online is about the MLR draft. Now, naturally, people are curious. It's the first time it's taking place. It's an amazing event. We've already covered this in past episodes. We don't want to dwell on this. We all agree that this is a wonderful step forward to create a solid pathway to professional rugby in the U.S. What we're curious about here today is what are those pre-draft changes? Why will they change the format? And why would a team essentially give up their spot and their pick? So to be able to hand the ball over and to start us off here today we're going to give two minutes on the rant to the big guy so go ahead scott the floor is yours okay so i'm going to talk about the two trades real quick so we had uh nola and la swapping nola um is is actually going to pick second now um swapping uh uh four picks nola's going to have four picks um or Rather swapping, no one's gonna have two and ten. LA's gonna have fourteen and twenty-two. Uh, those picks, and then New Orleans also gave LA one of their foreign player slots. So it's not just a. If you want to see what the incentive is there, it's not just swapping picks. Um, there is, there does have to be an incentive there, just like the NFL draft. Um, you're not gonna just draft uh, trade draft picks. You're gonna trade players. You're gonna trade players' rights. So it's interesting that the MLR has allowed teams to swap the foreign player uh, positions. Um, so now I believe it'll go. Uh, Nola will now have nine foreign player positions versus LA, who can have eleven. Um, the second pick, uh, the second trade in the draft, uh, we had Utah and uh, uh, Houston uh, uh, trade, and um, Houston now has no picks in the draft. So Houston traded all of their picks to Utah for uh, scrum half Robbie Povey. Now I spoke to Robbie, and um, you know he's. Uh, when, when he was asked if he's excited to go down the history books uh, as the first player ever drafted for a draft pick in the first draft, he said he actually hadn't really thought about it that way. Um, he was just excited to get uh, uh, a move to Houston, move to the Sabercats, and he's just ready to go to, uh, to the uh, 2021 season. Right. You know, it's interesting that all of this is breaking new ground. So he didn't even realize he was making history in a sense, which is quite funny, really. Uh, and it's indicative of this, uh, you know, the impact that this can have on the league is that it's going to be changing the way things are done for quite some time. Great points. And thanks for helping us understand what are the movements uh, right now before the draft and uh, the importance of such. And to be able to learn a little bit more about it, let's hand it over to uh, Rob. So what do you got for us, bud? So uh, what I found really interesting about this, and again, I was asking the same questions that a lot of people in the fan zone were asking, and that was why in the heck would a new team um, like L.A. give up um, a, a second pick uh, to NOLA, a clearly an established team? They've been there since the beginning. Why would they do that when, you know, you would think for them 
talent would be so vital. But when you really dig down and, and drill down into this and think about the logistics, I think it comes down to a couple things. What's LA need most? They need most experience. Uh-huh. Okay. Do you get experience from a college, uh, 21 year old, 20 year old college player? Not usually. There are only probably three to four guys in this league right now that came into, into their setup and could really offer something in terms of a consistent starting spot. Um, one of them, I believe, is Chance Wangalewski, uh, who has, was a U.S. Eagle, right? And even then, he wasn't consistently starting uh, uh, for um, rugby ATL. Uh, so it makes sense that they're going to be using that extra roster spot to look abroad and sign somebody that can bring some experience um, from the outside, from, you know, one in Mitre 10 or from, um, you know, uh, South Africa. Uh, on the other hand, NOLA, why would they give that up? Well, it makes sense, too, when you think about what Coach Osborne said You're in his interview. You're coming up your two minutes, yep. by the way. And what did they do? They had them probably more guys that were domestic on their roster coming from the college uh, system than most all other teams had. So they really – uh, like having young players that they can develop over two or three seasons. Ross Deppershman, okay, comes to mind. The Vampire uh, comes to mind. Um, Malcolm May comes to mind. So those are the kinds of guys that I see. Matt Harmon comes to mind. So it fits squarely with what they want to do with their team, and it works out for both of them. Right. And you do bring up some great points. Is then you spoke about the, the, the two, just to drill down to the important points that you conveyed. You know, Ale might be looking for experience that comes from players, not necessarily here. If it does, that's awesome, but it's understandable why they might be looking for an international player who has that rugby IQ with them, who has that experience of more, uh, I would say, tougher leagues, quote unquote. Now, when you look at Nola, you so rightly pointed out, they've got some great talent that they've grown into the team, but they already had some experienced players to be able to help guide them. They already have the existing infrastructure to be able to mold them. So, yes, some excellent points there. And it does help people recognize, well, why might L.A. have given up that uh, or wanted that opportunity and Nola given the other up? So let's move on to Craig. Craig, what have you got to share? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I, I do I do follow up on what Rob said. I think uh, there's almost another angle to it that that you know strikes me as important, which is, I think if Nola is jumping to number two, it's not just that they are in favor of developing domestic talent and they don't necessarily need as much experience. They seem like they must have someone particular in mind because, you know, anyone in the draft in the first round is going to be young, moldable. They have to have an incentive to move too. So I wonder who it is that they want, but I I get the feeling that there's someone specific they're targeting with that second pick, which is why they would do this. Um, The other trade is also interesting to me because – Houston basically gave up all of their picks to Utah, uh, you know, for one player. And that almost makes you think that's the type of trade that would happen if Houston felt like they were just one piece away from being, you know, a championship contender where Utah is a complete rebuild. But I don't think that the performance on the field has, uh, you know, agreed with that type of assessment. I think, you know, Utah has made the playoffs one year. I mean, I mean, they're, I think, as close to competing as Houston is. So it seems strange to me that Houston would make that sort of trade. Uh, so, I mean, we'll, we'll see if that works out. But I, you know, that looks like a steal uh, for Utah to me. Oh. Now, I also wanted to be able to, uh, to return to, uh, the, uh, to Scott. Now, Scott, I know that you had some thoughts uh, that you wanted to be able to share about um, LA and the international numbers as well. In fact, it might be a good opportunity to be able to help people understand and recognize when we talk about the international limit to players. Uh, do you want to be able to tackle that just so people understand what that means in the league right now? So you're allowed to field a certain amount of players uh, in, in your lineup. And um, so LA is now allowed to field one more foreign player than the other teams around them. Um, NOLA, one less. The biggest thing I think that hits on is what Rob was talking about is is having that international to get talent like a Chris Robshaw. And I think the Rugby Pass article made a good point saying Chris Robshaw, while he's not in his prime, is still a very serviceable player. He can come to a team and make an immediate impact on the field and in the locker room and in the organization. And that's what you get out of him. You get that leadership. You get that 
locker room feel of of an actual a guy who's been doing this professionally for so long that it just comes naturally to him to do certain things a certain way. And I think a team in LA would really cherish that not having a team, you know, a, a team prior. Whereas if he went to Gilgronies, if he went to Rooney, if he went to New England, now that they kind of have their setup and they kind of already have their 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 locker room leaders, you can go to an expansion team that doesn't have that and institute that right away. Right. And, you know, when you talk about coming, uh, having these experienced players who obviously have uh, already enjoyed rugby at some of the highest levels of the game can offer, and especially when you talk about a candidate like Rob Shaw, would be a great value to somebody uh, like LA who's only just starting out. But that value can also be on and off the field, which I think is important for people to realize. And the player coach roles that do exist, like the beast for OGDC, um, you know, the list can go on. So there is you're a lot of great value beyond what they just may offer on the field, which is why somebody in a position who's developing a new team from scratch might find it interesting to be able to have one extra international player. Rob, did you have any additional thoughts you wanted to be able to share? Well, there are two things. You saw my my head just bobbing up and down and nodding yes to, to what Craig was saying. And, and it's a point that I think is so vital and so important. And I agree with him 100% in that, I'm mowing the grass last weekend, uh, and and it struck me. I'm thinking, why would they? What else? What other incentive would exist for Nola? They have to have their mind on somebody, and somebody that they right. don't want to see slip, right? And they have a really solid lineup, particularly in the back line. You got to think that they're eyeing somebody that they believe could develop, not necessarily next year, but somebody they can develop two, three years down the road, and. I think people have to keep in mind there's some other financial logistics involved here for NOLA. When you develop U.S. talent, you can pay them less money than you can bringing in a foreign international, not only because it costs money to bring somebody in visas, et cetera, um, but also because it's easier to settle them into a job. Perhaps they have somebody in the area that they're interested, somebody that's from around that area that can easily transfer to the, uh, and or maybe even has a family that lives in the area. That's what happened with Chance Wangaluski. Chance Wangaluski had family in, in Atlanta. That's why he signed with them, right? It was easy for him and and uh, his girlfriend to to be down there and settle into that environment. And so they have to have somebody in mind. I think that was a great point made by Craig. The other thing I'd like to say is Utah, think about why they would want uh, those draft picks. And it, they're they're in a in a rebuilding mode and not that far away, but they have some administrative structures, and they have some coaching structures that have a ton of international experience, both from Australia and from the United States side. Given that fact that they can really use those young talented players and develop them once again, like Nola, develop them over the next couple seasons um, to really fit well into what they're trying to create for the future. Right. And you, you point out something that, that seems obvious to me, but it may not necessarily be to all of our viewers, is that you have to either think that your goal is short term or long term. You know, so in the short term, you may need experience right away and you can do that with an international player. But by choosing and positioning yourself to take on young talent and to groom them, you got to be playing the long game. And also it can be much more rewarding because as you so rightly pointed out, it might be less of a financial burden. They more easily assimilate into the team and the surrounding culture. So there's a lot of great benefits there. Um, now you also pointed out that they have to have somebody in mind. And this also brings up a, a thought that we are on the major league rugby rant podcast show, hopefully going to be covering a lot of these key uh, draft picks that we certainly highlight as some of the the prospects that will be in those first two rounds. Uh, and it's also worth noting that I believe that the last time I heard there was something about 400 near yeah. that number that have actually enrolled. Obviously, there's not even uh, you know enough for 10% of those to be able to find a spot. So there's a lot of searches, a lot of work to be done. Um, but there are some key players that obviously they have been looking at. And I wonder how they've done that research with such a short season. So it must have been reaching out to a lot of the local coaches and so forth. Uh, but I don't want to dwell on that too much. I just want to let our viewers know that we are going to be covering that in some further episodes leading up to our final coverage for the draft itself, where we hopefully will be able to do that live should the MLR uh, finally let us know whether that will be so, right? But not too far away from the topic. Let's stay on track. Craig, the floor is yours. Uh, just one other thing I, I wanted to add at the back of what Scott was just saying, which I think is interesting. You know, the, the foreign player cap, which 
expanded after the first season. I think it was five. Now it's 10. Um, it, it was always kind of uh, behind the scenes understood that maybe you could trade those slots to other teams, but that was never made public. So I, I'm glad to see now that there's a little more light shed on how it works. I, one thing I always find strange and frustrating is how mysterious this all seems to be. I don't know what they gain by being so secretive about the mechanics behind it all. Um, so, you know, I'm glad to see one other possible mechanic come to light that now we can talk about openly. Right. And, and that is exactly it. I think just fans are curious. They want to know more. And, uh, you know, we wish we could have all the facts, but maybe that's just because, well, it's evolving as quickly as it's happening. You know, the, the many people do have the criticism that the draft just came out of nowhere. Uh, there wasn't a you know successful buildup to it. Uh, it happened to be maybe just coincidence that the timing was on the back of the exit of uh, the Raptors, uh, or maybe it was a great tool to be able to create a diversion. You know, but nevertheless, where we are right now is I do believe ultimately it's a great idea to create a solid pathway to professional rugby uh, for college players while they still have the ability to continue getting an education, which is important. Now, and, and another and another thing, to play in the MLR in the upcoming season, you have to declare for the draft. You do not right. have to be drafted, but you have to declare or you sit out of here. So now you have the, the guys who aren't drafted can go and sign and become academy players with whoever they want. Uh, but there is a young man from Louisiana who's, uh, I believe, a front row or a prop. Um, and um, certainly uh, some of the age of the NOLA, NOLA front rowers. Um is is in the mid thirties. Um, mm-hmm. uh, ben Tars had some injuries, well, uh, yeah. and 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 I'm I'm guessing um, there's a powerful young man uh, mm-hmm. down there. I was watching some video on some of the squats. I mean, the kid's killing it. He's a big boy. He runs hard. Uh, he really takes players out, um, and he's from the Louisiana area, from the area right around New Orleans. So it wouldn't be surprising to me if they thought about, hey, here's a kid we're looking at because he fits. A, he ticks a lot of boxes for us. Right. Um, now, gentlemen, we're coming up on the, uh, the closer to the time where we need to be able to move on to the next topic. So I'll give you an opportunity to be able to leave a final thought. Uh, if you have a prediction of what some of the, uh, the moves might be, do we are we expecting even more movement just before it will come to be? Uh, you know, what, what's some exciting prospects ahead when it comes to the draft? Um, so I think I don't think we're going to have as much movement as we did uh, this past week. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of the teams are set and they know who they want. Um, they know who they want to build around. Um, and the people who've, who've wanted to move up, moved up. So, I mean, I don't think we're going to see that much movement. Uh, yeah, I agree with Scott. Um, I think one other thing to consider here is remember, we're only really going to have uh, 40, what, 44 players selected uh, out of 400. You're only talking about 10% of the kids that applied. Now, obviously not all those kids are ML already. And certainly while some of them physically might be uh, able to fit in there, uh, need to work on their skill set which allows teams to go into, you know, free agency with a lot of these kids, the kids that are around their area that may have a job lined up or may have mm-hmm. something going on in the area. So that presents an exciting opportunity. People don't think about, you know, the post-draft, what happens post-draft for kids uh, having an opportunity to apply their trade with a team and sign with one of the academies or one of the, the local men's clubs, and then they can work themselves into a position. Right, yeah. So there's a couple of different routes to be able to follow that can still right. get you to a to a, a MLR uh, position. You know, um, Craig, any final thoughts there for us? Yeah, one thing I'm very curious to see is how signability impacts the time between drafts and contracts actually being inked. You know, we all know the NFL draft. The NFL draft, almost everyone ultimately signs with a team pick, but like a baseball draft, for example, like the major league baseball draft, there's a lot more weight, I think, given to we're only going to draft a guy we think we can sign. And that's not always the case because they draft high school people. They can go to college instead of the, of the pros. So the, there's a lot more gamesmanship in terms of draft ability. You look at MLR and it's a league that doesn't pay, you know, it's, it's not an exorbitant salary for these people coming out of college. So, you know, Rob mentioned a local Louisiana kid going to New Orleans and New Orleans potentially may have traded a pick with L.A. for him. Would that guy have moved to L.A., a much more expensive place to live, if he was drafted? Uh, I wonder how – what percentage of draft picks are going to go to where they're, they're drafted. Hey, rugby fans, this is Ty Braga from the MLR Rant Podcast Show. 
A quick question to you out there. Want to be able to grow your business? Well, you can do that by advertising free with the MLR Rant Podcast Show, and here's how you can do it. Step one is simply contact us to find out more. We'll share all the options available. Step two, choose the package that works for you. Step three, get it for free. That's right, we're going to give away a free episode for every sponsorship package. So let us know by contacting us at the MLR Rant Podcast Show. And I think at this time, we've given it enough uh, opportunity to be able to talk about the draft, but it's best that we move on to the next topic that the Major League Rugby Fan Zone members had identified as a point of interest, which is to talk about the proposed and also the existing changes to the laws in rugby. Now, the first and most obvious one to be able to talk about Not that we need to spend too much time with it because there are some exciting opportunities to talk about what's upcoming, but the recent addition and amendment to the law of the grounding at the post. Thoughts, opening thoughts. I'm going to throw it back and we go in reverse order. So, Craig, I want your opening thoughts on the rule changes. Sure. Um, I guess I'm I'm shocked that if that's what people had in mind on Facebook, if this was trending as a a subject of interest, I mean (laughs) – I don't know how many years I've been watching playing rugby. I think I've seen someone ground the ball at the post for a try maybe three times. I mean, it's just right. such a non-factor in actual playing of How rugby. did this I, become high priority? Yeah, I just couldn't actually fathom a way to care less about a law change than I do about that one. Okay. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that you say that. Obviously, there's some great proposals coming up the way uh, that we'll talk about the 5022 change. We'll talk about the uh, the scrum clock. Uh, and then also the uh, proposed 22-man squad. So do you have any thoughts on those that you wanted to open up with? Yeah, sure. So the, there was a few there. Um, uh, you know, the 50-22 rule is a kicking law change that would allow you to uh, take the line out from the spot where it goes out instead of where you kick it if you gain more than 50 meters on the kick. Look, I'm a front rower. Uh, I don't kick. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Sound, I think I think it would change the strategy a lot. I, I think it would really uh, right. you know, obviously I'd put a much greater emphasis on people that can kick long, you know, punts into touch. So, you know, it, it's a gamesmanship thing. I think everyone would adjust, you know, once mm-hmm. that change was made, and then it would all settle into a new equilibrium that probably wouldn't be too different ultimately. Um, in terms of the – there's a rule about the scrum being clocked, uh, them instituting a scrum clock for a 30-second uh, max time to speed up the game. I, I mean, I'm fine with that. Uh, yeah, I think it's – I do think even as a front rower that the game could be a little boring to watch if they're just constantly resetting scrums. So worth try, you know, trying out, seeing if it, if it takes. The most – Meaningful change is probably the low tackle trials where they say, okay, right. we're going to trial people having to tackle below the waist. On that, I would say, look, I'm going to listen to what the health scientists and the data people tell me is working. But my instinct says that it's not the person who's – it's not the ball carrier getting hit in the head that's causing – you know, brain problems, CTE for players. It's the tackler that's getting hurt. I mean, when I when I when I've played or I like, it's tackling that's actually dangerous, much more right. than ball carrying. So I'm not sh- to me instinctively, I don't think lowering the point of contact for the tackle is going to make it safer. It may make it more dangerous because your head is getting you know even closer to knees and and things near the ground where it might get hurt. So, you know intuitively to me, I don't like it, but if, if it turns out they're trying it and it's actually making a difference, I'm, I'm open to it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, also just to be able to give a little bit of context to, uh, to our viewers to understand uh, many of these law changes obviously are trialed well before they decide to be able to make them a reality. And uh, the grounding of the post has been a topic uh, over the past few years. Uh, you know, it's only recently resurfaced because now trialed, it, just, no, it never happened. So they got no results. Right. So, but here's the thing with the 50-22 rule where it's uh, it's almost borrowed from the game of rugby league. Now, I know that's not necessarily familiar to a lot of our, uh, the, the American rugby fans, but, uh, you know, when you look at the game, the difference between the two is that one is created to be able to allow for a platform that makes the game faster and more exciting to watch. And one of the ways it does that is creating more open play. 
you know, a recent study had identified that in professional rugby at super rugby level was the example they had used. There's an average of only about 35 minutes of play in open play in a game that is 80 minutes long. So, you know, to fans, this has become almost stale. So how do they rework it? How do they make rugby more exciting? And this is why some of these rule changes have come about. And as you so rightly pointed out, Craig, one of the most significant changes to rugby as a game in its fundamental standing is probably the tackle rule. And it is also said to be that its root for that is in safety first. And they have recorded in France that there is as much as a 60% decrease in concussions because of this. However, as you so rightly pointed out again, it actually increased concussions in certain areas, and that was to the tackler because they are putting themselves in harm's way. So while overall the number may have gone down, but it's also typically seen to make it more dangerous for the tackler when you have to tackle below the waist because you're having to go in lower. It also had increased knee injuries as well. So there's definitely a good and bad in this scenario, and that's why we're here to be able to help people understand what they may be and to debate it further. And in order to do that, I'm going to throw it over to Rob and hear what some of your thoughts are. Yeah, so I think these law changes and the law um, trials are emanating from two points. Number one, player safety. Number two, speed of play. Okay. Now, with that being said, let me address a couple of these things. The post-grounding. We all look at that, and I agree with Craig. It's like, you know, you look at that. How many times when you play does that actually happen? It's very minute. Uh, but the law emanated because an Edinburgh prop, Pierre Schumann, lifted the, the goalpost pad right. to avoid the ball coming in contact and therefore allowing a score. But it also opened up the possibility for a player coming in to have contact with the goalpost, a, a metal goalpost, and thus causing injury. Um, we all get frustrated when those tries happen, but again, uh, it's it's very few and far between. So the reality is how much, how much impact will it really have upon a, a particular game? Probably not much. Um, you know, moving forward, uh, let's go to scrums uh, as a second row and a back row. I always find scrums an interesting point. Um, but I thought one of the other things that they were considering, and I may be wrong here, was the fact that a scrum penalty, they were talking about potentially changing uh, that penalty that you couldn't, the, the team that was awarded the penalty couldn't kick for post. They had to kick from hand, um, which which would be which would be rather interesting. And I'd, I'd definitely be for that because, you know, as somebody that's not in the front row, you know, and, and some of you guys are, but somebody's not in the front row, I don't always understand. How can you tell a difference when a particular player is responsible for bringing down the scrum? And, you know, many of our pundits who are experts and played international level are saying, asking the same question. So it, it puts less of an emphasis on those referee mistakes. Um, below the waist tackle. Uh, one of my things I hate watching, a player goes in for a tackle, looks like it's going to be legal. What's happened? The ball carrier drops their body, drops their head, right. and there's inadvertent contact. Is it, the, is it the tackler's mistake that the ball carrier drops themselves? So to Craig's point, um, you know, do we open up more opportunities for the tackle to be injured? 22-man um, roster dropping from 22 to 23. I like this one. And I think the big guy is going to disagree with me. I like it. Why? It's going to create uh, uh, more, a bit more space. It's going to put um, uh, more emphasis on a uh, fitter, uh, uh, fitter, uh, tight five uh, guys that are mobile. And I like to see the ball move. I like to see more open spaces. I like to see incitement and play. So um, yeah, that's that's where I'm at with those. I mean, yeah, I have face disapproval above you, Rob. <laughs> yeah, and I, I always hated being pulled out of games early. I like to play a full 80, so, you know, I, I like that rule. Yeah, but that's because you're in the back line. You can play a full 80. <laughs> no, no. I was a second rower. All right. Okay. I'll take it back then. I take it back. You know, I just wanted to be able to touch on the 22-man squad idea. I, I mean, I do like it. I see merit in it in some regard because – Essentially, if its effort is to be able to create a more competitive game, it might very well achieve that because you can't just replace an entire tight five. You know, you can't just suddenly bolster your back line as you might very well have done in the past. It's going to force you to be able to think about your strategy a little bit more uh, uh, deeper. Uh, you're going to have to be able to make sure your players are fitter. And if they're not, what is it going to do? It's get, Rugby is a game of mismatches. You need to be able to create as many mismatches as possible. And when they're tired and fatigue sets in in that final 20, 
That's when the game can become exciting because that fatigue is sat there. Gaps will exist that didn't exist in the first 60, and it may also create those wonderful line breaks that makes great viewing for rugby fans. So I do see merit in if your goal was to create a more exciting game, it might have the opportunity to do so. If you're a rugby analyst and you love the strategy behind it, you probably don't enjoy it because it just made it harder for you. So I think that that's, you know, people can decide what they prefer there. For me, you know, if I may add my two cents, I kind of like it. But Rob, I know you don't. Uh, Sorry, I stand corrected. Scott doesn't. So let's hand it over to Scott to see why he doesn't like it. All right. First of all, I have a lot to say. Let me bring you back to uh, oh, been October. I have been waiting. Yeah. <laughs> October 2008, the big guy scores two, two, two in one match okay. off the upright. So screw you both. Yeah. You guys. <laughs> um, the exception to the rule there. I, I, like I, I understand. I understand that it does. It does um, that the rule as it was gives the offensive side an advantage. So I see why they change it, but. That's all part of being cheeky and, and playing rugby. All right. Um, Out of curiosity, what, not to derail you, were you aiming for the post? Were you aiming for that? No, yeah. you had the opportunity. Yes. All right. Yes. You were using it. And that's and, and, it's late, late in the game. I was using my head. I knew what I was doing. And I knew I had, if you're around the ball and you're around the breakdown, that's where the referee is. He can see the ground easier. You know, right. it's not like, it's not like it was out wide and they brought it back in and I grounded it off the post there. I made sure that the ball was inside the five near the post so that somebody could see it clearly. So that brings up one of the rule changes you guys didn't talk about is having a second official in the middle of the field. Uh, I yeah. actually like this. I think having an, one official at the breakdown and one official calling off sides is fine. The other thing that that second official is going to do, and this is where it's going to help with the scrums and especially with that clock, is now you have an official on both sides of the scrum because you guys always know whatever side the official on – those two props are going at it, and it's always perfect. It's the other side he's not watching that's causing the collapse. <laughs> that's always the case. Um, as, as far as tackling, I think the aim is to bring your, your aim lower, so that way, like Rob was saying, as the ball carrier goes lower, everybody's kind of coming in in a safe, a safe way. I do agree with Craig. I think it causes uh, the tacklers do uh, have more injuries, head injuries going into tackles, um, but that's also – something you have to learn as a kid. And I think now um, kids playing uh, rugby at, at the youth level, um, kids who play youth football with the heads up uh, youth football program, the heads up tackling program are learning to keep their head up. So I think it's one of those innate things that will, by the time the younger generation comes over in every contact sport, you'll see everybody tackling properly and you'll have less of John Quill like uh, tackles. Right. And, you know, that that's exactly as you say, you know, you need to be able to bring these things into the game at a level where it can grow with them and then it will become the new norm. Um, what I wonder, though, is if you're talking about tackling below the waist, your pivot point is so low that, I mean, I would imagine, well, there really has been evidence of it. You, we spoke about the injuries to, to the tackler, but, you know, the person being tackled is also having his knees hacked out from underneath them. I wonder, you know, what's the implications there? Uh, you know, that's career-ending stuff if you take out somebody's knee. But here's the thing. It's not – you're aiming for the hip. That's the thing. They're and then I crap into it to create a smaller target. Yeah, but you're, you're below the waist is you're aiming for the hip. So if I'm going to tackle you and Craig is going to hit me on the offensive side, we are going to hit each other at shoulder level nine times out of ten because we're both mm-hmm. going to the same level. So if I'm aiming for the, the, the hip – and Craig is trying to meet me there, the tackle still happens above the waist in a safe manner. But right. is that a penalty, though? I mean, it, it isn't yeah. the law supposed to be that a, a tackle above the waist is now a penalty? Not, it's not, they're not just like giving you guidance, aim lower. They're saying tackle lower or we're going to penalize you. Right. I mean, it's the same conversation of, okay, tackle below you know, the arms, and, well, he crouched into it, but I still hit him above the shoulder. But technically, that would be lower than the height required. And, and let's, be, let's be honest, to, to Craig's point there, um, what do we see officials doing in response to a high tackle? It's not just an infringement penalty, you kick for post, you kick for touch. It's a yellow card. And, right. and that completely can change the game for 10 minutes. Uh, and if it's a repeat offender during a given game, you know, it's a red card, and that completely changes the game for the remainder of the game. 
Right, which would be a sad way to be able to to change the game, um, and it has to, to to be a firm, you know, understanding set. And if it follows the guidelines that are currently in place for the uh, the high tackle, you are right, Rob. That that means that you'll be sending off a lot more players, most likely than you have in the past. And you know, will that change the game? Absolutely. You know, could it very well change the game in some parts for the better because you might end up having to create more open play by force when you're a player or two down, but that's not the way that you want to do it, you know. Uh, but another thing I wanted to be able to bring up that is that you have to be able to consider is, as you know, you know, for all of us who play rugby, you want to try and keep your hands above the tackle. Now you're able to be able to do that if you're tackling lower, which means you can have opportunity for the offload more often without having that impact against you you know, how you protect the ball is going to be different, but you have more opportunity to provide that quick offload or that little uh, pop uh, in the tackle that could keep the flow moving forward. Can I jump back to the 22-man thing also? Go uh, ahead, man. I think the – I like the idea of reducing the bench uh, for all the reasons you guys said. It seems like, Scott, you never actually weighed in, but it seems like there's there's a lot of agreement at least on that subject. I'm not sure that – one person off the bench that was going to make that much of a difference. I'm, you know, who do you guys think would even this kind of a set bench roster, you know, it's going to be a full front replacement, a second row, a back row and so on. I mean, who do you think if they had to go with 22 gets dropped? I don't think they drop a front row. I I bet you have all the same forward subs you had before and you just have a back that could play, you know, fly half or back, you know. Back You'd have to have a utility back that can, yeah. you know, be multifaceted. I agree with you there. Maybe you have a second row who could also be a flanker. Yeah, something like that. There's going to be one utility reserve. I don't think it actually – I don't think one person down changes the gameplay that much. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, and I can't think of uh, which coach had said it, whether it was Gatland or Jones or – you know, I don't want to quote that on the, either of those two, but they had suggested to go one step further and make it a six-man bench. Then you're really going to see the the, the the right thing of what you want. Uh, now you're now you really truly are forced to think about how you you play your guys and you know the strategy involved in keeping them on the field and when to take them off. Yeah, but uh, now you have two injuries. You have two. You have two injuries where two different players can't come back in because they're they're that injured. First ten minutes. Now you're out of the ball game. How competitive is that? Well, what I'm referring to is if you went to – so if you took one – you made a 22-man squad, you make it a 21-man squad, and that's where you would see a big difference there. No, but what I'm saying is regardless of it's 22 or 21 – Oh, if, right. If, I get you. If, 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 if your, one of your props goes down and you bring in your reserve prop, one of your backs goes down and you bring in your reserve back. So now you have – out of the six guys you have in reserve, you had to put them in in the first 10 minutes, and then – the reserve gets injured. Right. Now, now what are you going to do? So I think uh, you're right. Because and that happened, position. didn't that happen in the World Cup? And didn't South Africa, didn't Rassi uh, kind of adjust his lineup and make some u- unusual um, reserve well, yeah. uh, reser- reserve alignments? And it kind of put them at a disadvantage because I, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, they had an injury in, uh, in the back line, two injuries, and they were kind of running a little bit short um, when it came to the latter stage of the game. Right. Um, so, so let's assume that you're not going to, to Scott's point, you're not going to change your front row because that's a specialist. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you're not going to change. You're not going to remove one of those guys as a potential sub. It forced you uh, to a have somebody that's more, a little bit more utilitarian that can play either one of the back five in the scrum, right? Or it it suggests that you have a little bit more athletic a player that might have to insert itself. You know, can play the back row or jump into the back line and therefore create some mismatches. Right. So if you had a flanker who was agile enough, had the right skill set with hand and ball, um, you know, you can move him into into the back line and for sure. Um, sure. Yeah, awesome. I mean, you have to think about yeah, playing. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, there's, there's a couple guys I can think of. But, yeah, but yeah. Uh, Scott, another thing, though, with the with the injury, I mean, obviously, at some point you could say, well, five guys get injured. I mean, true. But also when you reduce the roster size that way, you're naturally getting going to have to get smaller, fitter people to play, which means the chance of injury is also going down, you know, because you don't have just behemoths everywhere. You have people that have to be able to play 80. Keep in mind, too, you know, New Zealand uh, uh, did this for years. They've done this. Um, they've taken a guy like a Dan Coles, 
right? And they say, okay, Dan Coles is coming off an injury. We got to get him some quality minutes so he gets back into test form, right? So we're going to put him in in the last 20 minutes. Well, not because, you know, your your starter is, is uh, and and the name escapes me, um, uh, who, who started in place of Dan Coles. Uh, but at any rate, when Coles, he went out, you know, came in, um, it wasn't because uh, the, the starting um, um, hooker was injured. It was because they wanted to give him some minutes and get in some test form. And that's typically how they use a lot of, a lot of stubs. Like they sub TJ for Aaron uh, quite often. Is, is Aaron unfit? Can Aaron not continue to play? Is he really injured? No, they they have two phenomenal scrum halves and they're trying to give them both an opportunity to play, right? Well, Hey, why not just pick one and, and make them play? Fair points there from all of us. Uh, I now I wanted to be able to go once around the table here again as we've uh, given it again enough time. I wanted to be able to ask you on each of these rules in favor or not in favor. So we're going to go one or once around in each rule and find out. Grounding of the post, Craig for it, against it. Doesn't sure, really for good. it. Yeah. Okay. So Rob, same thing. Thumbs up. Even props should have to try to sidestep their opposition and score a try. They honestly, I'm bored as long as you take Scott's two tries off the record book. <laughs> yeah, it's scratched, scratched from the record forevermore. They might have been the only two, and I still don't feel bad about taking it away. <laughs> so, Scott, that. you think it's good? You think that? It yeah, no, I think I, 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 it's a good rule change because the uh, offensive team did have an distinct advantage, right? Which you found a way to exploit. Oh yes. <laughs> so let's move on to the 50-22 rule, which is to encourage more uh, tactical kicking for uh, gaining ground, where you can, of course, also retain possession of the ball should it bounce inside the field of play first, uh, having kicked from your 22 into the other half. Just so um, we're all on the same page there. What do you guys think? Uh, you know, I, I don't have strong feelings about it. I, I guess I'm against it. Uh I'd rather see less kicking, more ball carrying as a personal mm -hmm. taste, but uh, yeah, I, I can take it or leave it. All right. So, is your fear that it's just going to make more of a kicking tactical game? Yeah, I think it. I think it increases the amount of the game spent tactically kicking, which I don't think it overwhelms the game. It's just a slight negative in my mind. I would say. Okay, so you'll stand as against it. Against it. All right, Rob. Boo! <laughs> I, that's for sure. Keep the ball in play. Let's play rugby. Ball in hand. Run that rock. I'm All right. Territorial. Excellent. So, Scott, what's your thoughts? I'm actually for it. The, the reason being is I wonder how oh. many guys are going to be able to get the actual advantage out of that kick versus it becoming a turnover for the other team because it's 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 still in play. Um I do understand that it, it will create it might create less space uh, uh to to work out of the backfield, but I wonder when you're in the position at the field and you have to kick that length, how accurate are you going to be with that kick? I mean, we've seen Ben Foden try and make those kicks and he, he he's one of the best in the MLR at doing it and he's like 50-50 sometimes. It's an incredibly difficult task. I mean, you cannot understate the level of skill one needs to be consistently doing it because what's the, the risk is that you can miss it completely and actually lose ground, you know, uh, and or give away possession. So you have to be thinking about it, which is why I mentioned it's tactical. But one thing that I wanted to weigh in when it comes to that 50-22 rule, and you kind of alluded to it a moment ago, Scott, is that if you're going to be able to, to kick and gain territory in that way, you have to assume that as the defending team, you have to be alert for that opportunity. So instead of having one guy back as your traditional fullback position covering that ground, you might very well have to have two. So you might see one of the wingers having to drop back to be able to cover left and right, and then somebody maybe sit in the middle. Um, you know, and these what are, does that do, guys? It opens up the line to exactly. have those line breaks. All you idiots! Well, yeah, right. And I get the And 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 this really plays against like what what uh, Smith did, uh, Coach Smith did with uh, with um, um, Ireland, and having one fullback drop back that's really good at reading the game, right? But I, here's what I think is going to happen. I think. Uh, uh, Backline players are going to adapt. You'll get a fly off. You get a kicker like Carl Meyer, who will just start to practice that style of kick and just get more adept at doing it rather than creating more space. 
you know, time will tell, but I'm going to stand for it. And, and I think mainly because I think that you do have to drop another player back and you're going to create more space and it's going to create more uh, mismatches in, uh, in the line, defensive line. Ugh, okay. I was imagining so, kick chase, retreat, kick chase, retreat. And and that's why you're against it and you're allowed your opinion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you you're the one guy saying you wanted more, you wanted forwards who can work the 80 minutes. So there right, you go. Right. It shouldn't matter. Yeah. Up subs. yeah, yeah. The prop will be standing in the center field just watching like a tennis match back and forth. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to the next one, which is the scrum clock. We had briefly spoken about this. Uh, I think I know what the answer is going to be from all of you. Craig, start us off. I'm for it. Speed it up. There's no need to take more than 30 seconds to set up the scrum. Right. Uh, and okay, let's move on to, uh, to Rob. He's for it as well. All right, then Scott. I'm for it as well. I just, I don't see the, I, I'm for it, but I don't see a need for it. They need to train officials to say, to stop resetting the scrum and award the penalty. We could see it on television. If you can't see it as official, then I don't know what to tell you. Right. But even at the highest levels of the game, I see reset after reset after reset. So obviously that's not working. So you have to be able to set a new standard. No, correct. So that's why we need the clock, but I'm saying we shouldn't need to because the, the referee should be trained to, to not reset it. Right, but we need this rule, so so I'm for it. Okay, excellent. Then the last one we had spoken about. Uh, actually, there's two more. We're going to start with the 22 man squad idea. We'll go around the same way again. Craig, what are your thoughts there? I like it. I I, I would actually like to see it more though. But I'll, I'll say I approve on the trend in the right direction. Okay, cool, Rob. I, of course, am for it. You know, as one of those forwards that, that pride myself on being fit and being able to play a full 80 minutes, I like it. I think it forces uh, players to be more athletic and get around the park and and um, be prepared to play a whole game. Excellent. Scott? Uh, I don't like it. I don't think it makes that big of a difference. And if anything, especially that we do, we are playing in different climates, San Diego, it being hot, dehydration is a big thing. Um, I don't think it makes a difference. So I'm not, I don't think it should, we, we should change it. Spoken like a true prop who hates cardio. Uh, <laughs> so let's uh, move on to the last one, which is about the tackle rule below the waist. Uh, Craig, start us off again. Uh, I, I officially would await the results of the trial, but my instinct says against it. I think. Okay. I don't think it's causing – it doesn't seem like it's going to cause great health benefits. I think it adds a lot of problems like Rob mentioned in terms of should I go lower? Whose fault is it? Yeah. Right, right. All those things that we had covered. For you, Rob, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm against it. I think there's going to be some unintended consequences even in the trial process, and I think it's going to only create you know situations, particularly near the goal line, where you have guys diving down at one another in order to defend the try line. Um, that scares the crap out of me. Uh, mm -hmm. Now start to do that more. It'll happen more consistently uh, across the park. Right. I hear what you're saying, yeah. Scott? Um, I think what's going to come out of the trial is an augmented version of this, um, yeah. to which I was saying, if you're aiming low and you both, and you still hit shoulders, the referee is going to make that decision still. Um, but you know, if it was, if it was the attempt was there, I think that's what they're going to, that's what they're going to move it into. Right. So to understand that better, you're saying if your angle of entry into the tackle is perceived as the right height and below the waist, well, that shows fair intent, you know, the same as if they might reevaluate whether it had a shoulder or it had an arm in the tackle. Correct. All right. I hear what you're saying there. I mean, are they giving an advantage to Owen Farrell on this one? Because they seem to give him a lot of advantage with regard to shoulder tackles, too. <laughs> a topic for another day. We shall dedicate an hour to this. <laughs> hey, rugby fans, this is Ty Braga from the MLR Rant Podcast Show. A quick question to you out there. Want to be able to grow your business? Well, you can do that by advertising free with the MLR Rant Podcast Show. And here's how you can do it. Step one, you simply contact us to find out more. We'll share all the options available. Step two, choose the package that works for you. Step three, get it for free. That's right. We're going to give away a free episode for every sponsorship package. So let us know by contacting us at the MLR Rad Podcast Show. All right. So 
you know, we've covered that there. I think the final one to be able to step forward so we can discuss this with our viewers is the uh, recent news that the players of the MLR have decided to be able to have a union represent them in their dealings with the league. Now, it is also worth noting that the last correspondence that I had heard or had read is that it had not yet been recognized, the union, uh, by the league itself. So we're going to open it to the floor to be able to help our viewers understand what is the purpose of it, um, why is it important to the league and the players, and, of course, ultimately uh, how we see that relationship growing in the future. So let's start in reverse order. We're going to start with Scott on this occasion. So the floor is yours, bud. Um, I'm for the unionization just because the players need to – while the MLR, from what I know, is treating the players how they should be treated – um, the union affords them the protection to, con to continue to do so and to collectively bargain other rights. Um, so I think it's something they should move forward with. So I have a background in this. Currently, there's a petition to the NLRB. Um, well, that's the National Labor Relations Board um, saying that the players want to unionize. Uh, the, the MLR is given a certain amount of time to respond to that. Um, from the timing we talked about a couple weeks ago, we think that's that that response is going to happen after the draft. Um, and then they could say, no, we don't want the petition to do that. Yes, we do. And then it becomes a, a, a legal matter. Um, but I'm for it. Um, if the guys want to do it, they should do it. They need to protect themselves and their rights. And like I said, I'm not saying that MLR is doing anything wrong to them currently. In this COVID crisis, they paid out the contracts. You know, that's a big step. A lot, a lot of people, I mean, they were talking about NFL teams and MLB teams and NHL teams not doing that while they were under contract. With, with the union. So I don't think they, they're losing anything by just having those rights protected and having the ability to collectively bargain. Right. And you bring up an excellent point is that the MLR was praised around the world and, of course, locally for uh, staying committed to their players and honoring those contracts. So, you know, there's, there's definitely great uh, uh, good gestures and wonderful faith that we can have as fans that they are taking care of the players thus far. There's no reason to, to think that it's otherwise. Uh, and this is just another great step forward in the maturing of a league that you should have representation for your players. So, Rob, what are some of your thoughts? So I actually, when this came down, I actually got in touch with the player representative who, you know, the attorney uh, that was representing the players and had actually presented this to the, to the league. Uh, his name is Mike Young. And Mike Young really wanted to emphasize that the league had not responded yet. Um, and uh, they, they basically directed Mike to have their correspondence with the league uh, attorneys. Um, but the emphasis was on both have sim both the league as well as the players union have similar interests to grow the game um, and to take the game forward in a positive direction. So they were trying to reduce that acrimony uh, that might and usually does come from uh, any kind of um, uh, negotiation between players and owners. Right. That's typical, particularly in American sports. Um, that being said, I think they felt that they wanted to force their hand a little bit by be making this, this uh, public knowledge. Uh, does that create more acrimony? Yeah, it naturally does. Uh, but it was important enough to the players. He said an overwhelming amount of the players in the league were supportive of unionization. Well, what does it offer? It offers consistent treatment. Let's go to a different time, a different day, and a different issue, some other issue that causes league-wide concern for the players. Um, they want consistent protection. While they may be protected under this COVID crisis, this time does it guarantee them some protection down the road without a union? No, it doesn't. Don't forget you have new draftees coming in. Yes, there's only 44 of them, but what rights do they have? What guarantees do they have? Many of these kids are now going to have to pick up and move to a different city, which they're unfamiliar with. Um, moving to New York, Scott knows the cost of playing in New York. What it's going to cost to live in New York? It's extra incredibly expensive. You know, how does that figure into a new college? You know, a, a college play and their ability uh, to apply a trade and and continue the rugby development. So, some great points there about you know the benefits uh, that surround the union, uh, having a union, uh, the importance of it. Um, now, let's go ahead and uh, off the floor to Craig. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think Scott and Rob covered it well. I think. It's definitely good, I think, for even for the owners. I think it's good for everyone in MLR for a union to form. I think it makes it more professional seeming. I think right now you worry that there's 
really disparate treatment of players in different organizations. I think this will make it more conformed. So it'll be more seamless as they move from one team to another. I think you always hear allegations about behind the scenes, this, whatever, this person's getting a secret, whatever that. I think a lot of that can, can kind of get marginalized by a union. And I think the people in the draft, I mean, a draft is a weird thing because the player is basically giving up their right to negotiate their own contract with whoever they want. They're entering this lottery for their future and without a union to represent them. I think that's a really unfair ask of college kids. So, I, you know, I like it. I want to put touch on a point that Craig made um, about people and, and the way they're compensated. The players are compensated, you know, because for example, the New York players, a lot of them live in houses provided by the team. So my question is, if a majority of the teams that don't have to do that because the cost of living is less negotiates that that now becomes part of their salary, who's going to want to go play in New York if, if the, the rent that they're giving you is now considered part of your salary and compensation? So, I mean, I think there could be interests that get lost. And, and it's a fledgling league. So I would assume in five years from now, if everybody's making at least a minimum of 100 grand, it's not an issue. But if you're only making... 45 to 25 to 15. And now they're saying, by the way, you, you live in the house that they're providing you that has to be added to your compensation. You know, I, I could see that happening because the littler uh, uh, branded markets might say, well, it's not unfair. Right. Of course. I hear what you're saying. And then being where Rooney is in the position they are, they're at a disadvantage. And likewise for San Diego or Seattle, you know, these, these more expensive hubs of, 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 of real estate. Uh, yeah, I mean, those are those are challenges. And, you know, that's that's a great debate there. And it's also probably worthwhile letting people know that I believe that the current uh, cap salary cap for an individual is at 45K. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Um, you know, so no, it isn't a significant amount of money. And as you so rightly pointed out, until we're at six figure salaries consistently, that won't be an issue. Um, but for now, it definitely remains as such. So I want to go back to points that uh, both the big guy and uh, Craig talked about. Number one, um, I do think that having a CBA will create a little bit more transparency across the league about compensation, which I think is critical. Going back to a point that Craig made uh, much earlier in the show, and that there seems to be a lot of mystery around a lot of things in this league, and compensation seems to be one of them, right? How do they get a guy like Bast in New York? Uh, without right. compensating him in some additional way. Um, I, I think, Scott, to Scott's point, though, is that if you remember that in this, in, in the particular organization and, and union that they have, that there's a player representative from each from each um, team. Like there's a women's sevens rep, there's a women's 15s rep, there's a men's sevens rep, uh, this is on the USA side, and a men's 15s rep, right? The same thing will happen within the league. You'll have a rep that comes – um, from each team that'll represent each each of the players, and That's correct. you know that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that they're going to bargain the same way. So if, if it's no, no, it doesn't. But 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 you gotta you gotta think that the San Diego, Seattle, the New York reps will come forward and say, "Hey, look, gentlemen, you know we're kind of on the we're on the the downside of this piece, you know, in terms of compensation and the cost of living, etc. We've got to build this into our CBA, like you know, cost adjustment. I mean." Uh, yeah, they have they have people that 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 can crunch numbers and figure out. You're a number cruncher, Scott. You can you, you know how to do something like that. But I'm sure if it's important enough to enough guys across the league, it'll come up in a CBA. Yeah, and I think having the union will help. I'm not I'm not actually sure which side you're arguing there, Scott. I think having the union will help ensure there isn't a imbalance created that way because without a union. It's just managers competing with each other, and it's political. You don't know how, how it's going to happen. If you have a union, now the players who have no vested interest in which manager makes the most money, they just want a fair playing field so they have the most options possible. They're the ones I think, that, I think having a union will help them come in and bargain and say, hey, we need a, a fair salary structure that fairly adjusts for cost of living no matter where you live. I agree with that, and that's why I think it's important to recognize is as – um, Mike Young said, um, a significant, overwhelming majority of players support unionization. So you got to think that they have a collective mentality, that guys in NOLA, which has a cheaper uh, uh, cost of living, are saying we recognize what's going on in Rooney, we recognize what's going on in San Diego, but the cost of living is more expensive. So let's build something in 
to help those players as well so that they're not left at a disadvantage. And that's why I th- I'm supportive of the union structure. It's also probably worth noting, and I don't know if we covered it, and, and that the union itself, and I think there was a brief uh, moment that we had touched on, I don't know who said it now, it was the, the, the USA 7s and so forth. Now, I believe that the union that is uh, that is to represent the MLR players is the same union that is currently representing the USA Nationals. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. Yep. So obviously they have already got experience in this. It's not like this is a startup union who has no say or no influence or has no experience in the sporting realm. Uh, they've been doing this um, and they've obviously got some experience to draw upon. So it's a natural fit that they would make their way to representing the players perhaps at MLR. And, and to that point, you know, uh, the players that represent the U on the USA side, uh, I believe Osberger is one of them. And I know the butcher from Rooney is one of them. So you're talking about players that are in the league already that have been involved with the union and are well aware of some important player issues. Right. Excellent. I saw you shaking your head there, Craig, what do you got? to yeah. say? Yeah. You know, I, I think, I don't love that it's the same union, frankly, that, that covers the Eagles. I, I think there's pros and cons. I think right. it's good in the sense of player release, subjects like that, or you know, player welfare, managing international play and league play. But it's a little weird to me that, I mean, in, in the one case, they'd be representing people that are negotiating with MLR owners. And in the other case, uh, you know, who are their – counterparts then it's not mlr anymore now you're talking about i guess usa rugby and world rugby is who they'd be negotiating with then i'm not sure that they're they don't run into conflicts of interest now Mm -hmm. you know having so many different uh concerns to balance uh so i kind of wish they had their own are you are you suggesting that there should be a separation then? Um, yeah, I think you were just about to lead into it though. So sorry for the interruption, but continue with that train. Oh, yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. I I think I'd feel a little better. I'm okay with it, but I, I think I'd prefer they had their own union. Right, and I can see merit in what you're saying is that you know at what point do the lines become blurred, and you know is that too late to be able to broach the subject of separation between those two? Uh, so yeah, I mean there is some merit. I I definitely see but, what you're saying there. But the- the difference being it's it's almost like if you were a teamster, you know, local 202 down the Bronx is going to negotiate on their contract based on what they need at local 202 versus the teamsters out in California and their local are going to negotiate the needs that they have being a teamster in California. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's different. There are different masters. I don't think the, the arm's length transaction there is that big of an issue. Let me throw one more wrinkle into this, though. Keep in mind that you're also dealing with a Toronto team that is an entirely different set of, you know, labor issues. Uh, right. And and as uh, Mr. Young pointed out to me, that you know you're talking about the National uh, Labor Relations Board, right, Scott? But then in Canada, it, they don't do it nationally. It's it's province by province, so it's the uh, Ontario Labor Relations Board. So. Uh, that really presents some challenges, which, by the way, is why Mr. Young pointed out to me that they would have liked to have had a, a real seamless approval by the owners because then you don't need to involve either of those entities in the process. Right. I mean, I don't think it's that big of a concern. The NHL has to do it. It has to do yeah, it. They, they do. have like five teams in five different provinces. So I don't think it's as if the NHL is already doing it and then the NBA does it with Toronto and the MLB does it with Toronto. I don't think it's as big of a challenge as they're making it out to be. Right. Well, I mean, a lot of interesting points, but I think that ultimately we can all agree that this is something that uh, is common in professional sports. It should be that they have representation. You know, there's no ill intent. There's no ill will. There's no, you know, adverse conversations between them. It's just the natural progression of professional sports that they should have representation. If they're employed to be able to do a job, they should have fair representation. Would that be agreeable with all of us? Yep. Yep. Excellent. Well, boys, you know what? I think it has been another great episode of the Major League Rugby Rant podcast. Craig, again, thank you for joining us. And, Thanks uh, for having me. And, Rob, you know what? It's it, you, You've all put some great points forward, and it always comes down to a difficult point for me to be able to choose who the winner will be. So I think I'm going to choose something that will be a little bit more controversial this time, and I'm going to keep the competition between Rob 
and Scott going, and I'm going to hand this to our guest today. So congratulations, Craig. The points mean absolutely nothing, and the win means nothing too. But you have the break. a lot in my heart. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it really has been a pleasure having you on the show. Now, obviously, I'm pretty sure everybody who's watching this is probably listening to what you guys do as well over at the uh, EOD uh, I know from, I speak for everybody who's on this feed as well, that we love what you guys do. Uh, you've been doing it a long time. You've set the standard and, uh, we're just being able to hopefully do our part here on the MLR rent, but we truly do and appreciate it. Real, real quick. Since, since he won, I'm going to give him a plug. Uh, the runner sports, uh, Craig does his uh, Monday morning fly half during the season. You can also find him at, at American RFC on all platforms. So there's your shout out, Craig. Excellent. Thanks, well, Craig. <laughs> I like it. And this episode is sponsored by. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's been fun. I think that's what this is always about. I mean, so none wait of us- a minute. Did Craig give both of you guys money? Scott <laughs> for the win and Scott for the plug. I think I got on like on the for those that for those that don't know, Craig is a Rooney fan and, and a rooster booster like me. Um, and, and we're oh, good you're friends. You're not helping so, the cause, yeah. Like Rob's just like, conspiracy, I say, conspiracy. <laughs> Rob's going to unionize. He's going to call the lawyer. I, I see where this goes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, where's the podcasters union? well i tell you if there was a conversation about money i've really been cut out of the conversation unless the check is in the mail but uh yeah i mean again it's it's been fun you know what we do we do it in good spirit we do it uh for the love of the game and we're happy to be able to share it Uh, you know what for all of those that are watching us and this show Please take the opportunity to let us know what you think by filling out a few comments below in this feed. We'll have it posted in the usual places, which of course is the Major League Rugby Fan Zone group on Facebook. You can follow us online as well through the social media accounts, which Rob, uh, sorry, I stand corrected, is Scott is in charge of. Uh, that'll be the MLR rant. That's on the same handle, I believe, for Twitter and for Instagram. Can you confirm at that? MLR, uh, yeah, correct. It, the the uh, handle is at MLR rant on all social media. All right, perfect. So you made it nice and simple and easy. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, we hope to be able to see you enjoying further episodes from myself and the gang here. Thanks very much for watching the Major League Rugby Rant Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.